This episode of Hey Kids Comics is respectfully dedicated to the memory of Sir Christopher Lee. What's your favourite Christopher Lee film? I don't know. Do you not have one? I don't think I have one. <sighs> Shocking. I like The Return of Captain Invincible. I think okay. it's a great film. I've not seen it in decades, so I don't know if it holds up. Alright. But I really do quite like that. And Dracula AD 1972. That's okay. a corker. Right. That's a cracking film. Revenge of the Sith. I can go with Revenge of the Sith. He's in it for ten minutes. He is. He's in Attack of the Clones more. Yeah. But he was always good, wasn't he? Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the show. Our show. This show. This show. This week, we have a special treat. They're all special treats. Are they? I think they're all special treats. Do you not think they're all special treats? If they're all special treats, then none of them are special. Ah, but we only release one show per week. Surely we are allowed to be special every single week. We are special. Yeah. Very special. I'm special. You're special. This is special. We're all special. Okay. When everything's special... No, no. Everything's special. Everything's special. Yeah. Everything is awesome. Should we just do a show? I think we should. Have we done anything interesting this week? Um, no. No, I don't think I've even watched that. I've been watching The Office on Netflix. Have you been watching The Office on my Netflix? I have. Because last night I started watching an episode, and then I got halfway through it, I was... I watched this one last <laughs> week, because yeah. you were a season behind me. I think I'm two seasons behind you. No, I'm in the middle of season three and you were watching the Halloween episode from season two. No, I wasn't. Were you not? I was watching season one. Oh, uh, maybe that's from season one then. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I was, I was just working so I had it on in the background. It's good, the office is funny. Early ones are funny anyway. Alright, we'll just go straight into an email and Paul, read this email, sucker! It's the title and it's from Christopher Franklin. Hmm? Jive Leyland's, I like that. Jive Leyland's, <laughs> you know what we're saying. Bit of Bee Gees. Little bit of the Bee Gees. Are we turkeys now? We are jab turkeys. Honky. That's right. what you used to say in those films, isn't it? Jab cracker. You turkey. Yeah, that kind of thing. Ain't nothing funnier listening to a couple of lambs do some funky 70s jibber jabber. You honey suckers make me laugh my booty off. About as funny as some pasty redneck turkey in Kentucky trying to take this pile of monkey crap. Fool. He didn't write fool at the end, Chris, didn't But yeah. it, it seemed appropriate. Add the word fool. I ain't getting on no plane, sucker. <clears throat> Enough of that. Right, Chris. Oh, well, I could go on all day, but I won't. One of my earliest Spidey comics was Marvel Team-Up number 75 with Spidey and Cage. Then I came across Marvel Tales issue 100, which reprinted Amazing Spider-Man issue 123. So I've met Spidey and Luca's allies, then encountered them again as enemies. So I had mixed feelings on Cage, but I always kind of liked him from afar. I've seen some original art pages for Gwen's funeral from Amazing Spider-Man 123 and man did Ramita redraw everything on that page. The pencils are pure cane, but the printed page looks 90% Ramita. I think this was in the Marvel Visionaries Gil Kane trade paperback, what the original pencils were, because I wouldn't mind seeing them. I may do some Google Foo 
Right. And see. Some Google foo. Some Google foo. Because after seeing Isn't that, that what Hackerman does. Yes, his <laughs> Kung Fury. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because um, after seeing the original pencils for the death of Gwen, which was significantly redrawn by Mr. Ramita, I am interested in checking that out. Uh, Chris continues, I will point out that a version of Luke Cage and Iron Fist have made it into the mainstream media on the current Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon on Disney XD. They are teen versions of those characters, but hey, the names in general look fairly faithful. I do agree Cage was long overdue for some media exposure, though, but until just a few short years ago, so was almost all of the Marvel Universe. Had to imagine, huh? Loved the 70s soundtrack on this one, very cinematic. Oh, and Blackula was played by William Marshall, who Andy will know as Professor Daystrom from the classic Star Trek episode of The Ultimate Computer. That film and its sequel, Scream, Blackula, Scream, are surprisingly well done and acted, mostly because of Marshall, despite their exploitation roots, Chris. And of course, in true Hey Kids comics fashion, I did remember that Blackula was uh, Dr. Richard Daystrom. Right. As I was editing the show. <laughs> and I was like, why, why did I not remember that when I was doing it? Sure. I, I did think about cutting it in and then I yeah. can't be bothered. Who cares? Our, really? our ultimate downfall. Yeah. Not being bothered. Not being bothered. Our lackadaisical nature <laughs> wins through again. Our apathy. Yeah. <laughs> Withdrawal and disgust is not the same as apathy. Mm. Tom Panarese has emailed in. Woo! Superman Ulysses and why I just can't anymore. This Superman Ulysses thing don't want to go away, does it? Doesn't Civil War all over again? It is Civil War all over again. Andrew and Michael, I am writing to you on the morning after. I crossed the event horizon when it comes to DC Comics. Yes, I just finished reading Convergence. And with the exception of Batgirl and Scooby-Doo team-up, there are no longer any DC Comics on my pull list. Well, we're only getting two, aren't we? We're going to get Batman uh, and Justice League. Yeah. I'll admit that some of the solids I'm seeing in previews look good. I'm a little bit intrigued by the Dark Side War in Justice League, but I just can't anymore. Why? Your episodes about the Jeff Johns John Romita run on Superman illustrate my reasons perfectly. It's not the misuse of characters, although that has been pretty terrible of late. It's not the costume changes. It's not that everything is dark and gritty. It's not that I'm old, although you could make a case for that. It's that every time I turn around, DC is coming up with some sort of event or hyping some new creative team in a next big thing way that is utterly exhausting. And yes, event exhaustion, not event fatigue. Lately, when a hot writer is put on Superman, he seems to think that he has some sort of obligation to try and be Alan Moore and give us the next for the man who has everything or whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, not realising that A, there's only one Alan Moore, thank God, and Tom said that, not me, B, you cannot swing for the fences and expect to hit it out of the park, and C, other writers have tried this and crashed and burned horribly grounded and for tomorrow come to mind. And D, some of the greatest Superman writers wrote stories that were simply part of the ongoing comics and gained their reputations after the fact. Why is it so hard to get Superman right? Well, because these people are trying too hard. DC and Superman especially need more contact hitters in its lineup, men or women who can churn out solid stories on a regular basis that earn their reputation and have staying power. We don't need DC to churn out team pop. We need them to give us the Foo Fighters. And I need to stop with bad metaphors. All in all, I enjoyed these episodes, and not just because they made me feel better about not buying the comics, but hey, at least it took you less time to read than that other great work named Ulysses. Two chapters of that doorstop took me three months, and I gave the book back to my friend with a note that said, I'm sorry, I tried. Onward and upward in my catching up with your podcast. Thanks again. All the best, Tom. Well, you're very welcome, Tom. Thank you for emailing in about Superman Ulysses. 
It does seem to be the show that everybody emailed in about. Yep. Including Matthew Guy, who has emailed in about Superman Ulysses. Jones Ramita Jr. made this lifelong Superman fan disappointed. Hello, Andrew and Michael. Superman 32 and 39 provided a slightly burly above average story from Jeff Jones. I had more hopeful expectations from Jones, but these issues felt like a wham-bam thank you for the paycheck without the best efforts to make up a good story. I give Ulysses 2.7 stars out of 5. I'm pretty much convinced if you want a top quality or even good Superman story, you have to read older collections. I read Superman Doomed recently. It felt like a watered-down version of the classic death of Superman and more recent Reign of Doomsday by Paul Cornell. I get the variety of Superman books each month, but it has been, more often than not, been a lot of misses and few hits with the New 52. Still the saga, Velvet, and even the return of Yuzuji Ujimbo to get my comics joy burning strong. A shout-out to your podcast and many others for participating in the Jerry Conway crossover event, as it was a surprise that educated on creator rights and entertainment showcasing a variety of stories. Yeah, on that, I don't think we educated our <laughs> We may have entertained yeah. inadvertently. And inadvertently took part. Well, we were one of the last ones to release. Right, yeah. Because obviously we have this two-week lead time and everyone else recorded it and released it and we don't do that. So I didn't think we'd get into the whole creator right thing because there didn't seem any point. Because hmm. by the time we released that episode, I figured events would have moved on. And yeah. indeed they had. By the time it, so basically we just like paid it some lip service. Yeah, yeah. Said there's a couple of great shows, and I forgot what they were because you know preparation, not my name. Uh, so I listed them all in the show notes yeah. when I posted the episode. But other than that, we were going to cover that Luke Cage issue anyway. Yeah. So there was a bit of me that felt a bit guilty jumping onto the bandwagon. But hey, as we've already established, if there is a bandwagon driving past, you will jump. On we it. will jump upon yeah. it. Shall we finish Matthew's email? Final, I have a question. Ooh, since before your son burned hot, I've awaited a question. Do comic book shops give discounts in the UK, or is that only for online retailers like Amazon? I don't know any comic book shops that give discounts, but I don't order my comics from comic shop. Well, I do, but well, I, don't think I get do. it online. Do, do discounts. I don't, they don't do that, oh, do de dee dee. Dirty, dirty purple kittens. <laughs> uh, Forbidden Planet is cheaper. Don't think Forbidden it? Planet is cheaper than Travelling Man on an issue per issue basis. And Forbidden Planet seems to have trade sales more often than anyone else. Like mm. they had loads of essentials this week for six ninety nine. Right. And it was like, ooh, but they didn't have any I wanted, which was a shame. Otherwise I would have picked some up. But yeah, Forbidden Planet seems to have sales on their graphic novel collections more than other mm. places do. But they don't really have discounts, do they? No. Not as far as I know. Thank you for emailing in, Matthew. It was very much appreciated. Last email for tonight is from David Gusarez. It's called Michael's Jail Time. And uh, Michael is too street savvy to just have learned this stuff from TV and hip-hop. Did he do time in the joint? Does he have a teardrop tattoo? Does he use toilet paper to write out his legal defence? David M. Gutierrez. Inquiry minds want to know the answers to those questions. I, uh, my lawyer has <laughs> told me that I <laughs> cannot confirm to... nor deny... <laughs> I could not possibly comment. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> All right, fair enough. We'll knock it on the head for emails, though, and uh, we'll uh, return to them next week to the email sack, because the email sack is always nice to rummage around in, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's yeah. always lovely to rummage around with your sack, I think. Oh, we should check it, you know. The sack? Yeah, you should always check it. Okay. For lumps. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back in a minute with a very special two-part episode. See you in a minute. A secret governmental organization 
operating behind the scenes. Task Force X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall! The Black Costume Saga is one of the most notable entries into the life of one Peter Parker. For any number of reasons. For one, changing an iconic outfit for a character known around the world was pretty unheard of at that point, the early 1980s. Sherlock Holmes is known for his deerstalker, Mickey Mouse by his red breeches, and Superman by his flowing crimson cape. Changing a brand as to be almost unrecognisable was tantamount to commercial suicide. The closest we'd had in recent memory at that time was Batman adopting a yellow oval. Secondly, Steve Ditko's design for Spider-Man is one of the most recognisable and effective in comics history. It's a striking colour scheme, scarlet and dark blue, or scarlet and black if we adopt Ditko's original intent, with that embossed web pattern and intriguing underarm webbing. The most interesting design choice, though, is the mask. Traditionally, superheroes wore domino masks, a sliver of black over the eyes that still allowed their beaming and friendly faces to be seen by all. Other times, they wore a cowl that still allowed their eyes and sturdy chin to be on display to enhance their friendliness and appeal. That is, of course, if they wore a mask at all, with characters like Superman and the Fantastic Four eschewing them completely. Spider-Man wore a full face mask with no eye slits or cheery grin or square jaw. He was, to put it mildly, quite creepy. To throw that instant brand recognition away was madness. And yet, in the 1980s, Marvel Comics was in one of their most fertile and creative periods, with seemingly nothing off-limits. To that end, when writer Jim Shooter was looking at ways that his 12-issue magnum opus limited series Marvel's Superheroes The Secret Wars could be different and exciting, he recalled a suggestion from a reader. Randy Schuler had written in earlier that year with ideas for a new costume for Spider-Man. Schuler's pitch involved Reed Richards and Janet Van Dyne in some capacity, and his design idea was for a black costume with a red spider on the front. Schuler, who was paid $220 for the idea, even had a story conference with Tom DeFalco, although his ideas ultimately weren't used. Shooter was still keen, though. He wanted Secret Wars to have some impact on the regular Marvel line beyond being a 12-issue commercial for action figures. Shooter decided that this would be the impact on the Spider-Man comics Secret Wars would have. Peter Parker would return from beyond a world with this new costume, and the mystery would be where it came from. 
Initially, the idea was greeted with scepticism. Letters to the Marvel offices implied the idea would be stillborn, with readers poo-pooing it sight unseen. Behind the scenes, at Marvel work proceeded apace on the design work. Toy Biz, the company behind the whole Secret Wars toy thing, were made up. They were going to get two Spider-Man figures for the price of one. The costume was designed by Rick Leonardi and Mike Zeck and was a complete contrast to the Ditko original, being essentially a black body stocking with a large white spider that enveloped the chest and whose legs wrapped around the wearer's ribcage. Sketches do exist of the suit with a red spider before the more familiar white one was decided upon. It was scheduled to make its first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man issue 252, but Shooter, getting cold feet over all the negative mail, was starting to feel that this was a bad idea, and told writer Tom DeFalco to ditch it in the very next issue. DeFalco argued they couldn't do that. See, the publishing schedule for Secret Wars meant that the issue where Spider-Man received the costume, number 8, cover dated December 1984, would see print seven months after it first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man 252, although chronologically it takes place well before. DeFalco successfully argued the costume had to stick around at least that long. With the decision made, DeFalco started to concoct his story. Amazing Spider-Man issue 252 was released with a May 1984 cover date but actually came out at the end of January. The cover by Ron Friends and Klaus Janssen is a pastiche of Amazing Fantasy 15, with Spider-Man swinging off with two people under his arms as opposed to the one of the inspiration. The rumours are true, runs the copy, introducing the new Spider-Man. It's a pretty good idea as this was the era where homages such as this hadn't been overplayed. Picking this up off the stands was pretty exciting, and I distinctly remember buying this upon its release. I also coloured it in, giving Peter a stubble, and thus rendering this future priceless comic book worthless. Which is why I was made up when the mighty Sean Engel sent me another copy. Thanks, Sean. You reread this, didn't you? I for did. this show, yeah. because you don't actually pay attention to the notes. I did. I, t- I mean, I read what was in the book. Yeah. And what was in the book said we were reading this issue? Well, it was after I was making notes on the book, uh, in the book, that I recalled that we have not only covered Amazing Spider-Man 252 before, Yes. Uh, we have also covered Secret Wars issue 8. Yeah. So we'll just give the cliff notes on this one. But if you want to go back, lovely listener, they were in episode season 3, episode 4, and season 4, episode 3. You did your research? I did my research to see what episodes there were. So upon reflection and reading it in the grander scheme of the whole, what was your impression of Amazing Spider-Man 252 this time round? It's fine, I guess. It's fine, I guess? Yeah. It's a great issue, dude. All it does is just introduce the black costume. Pretty much. There's not really much to it, but it accomplishes that goal admirably. Well, in that case, then, uh, that issue, the first appearance of Captain America, is a great issue because it achieves the goal it sets out to do. No, it doesn't, though, does it? <laughs> because the goal it sets out to do is to bring back Captain America and then tell our story. And the story that it decides to tell in Avengers number four pretty crap. isn't that good. Yeah. So, whereas this, the only goal of this issue is to introduce the black costume, and it succeeds in that goal. So yeah. this is not another Avengers number four. This is standing apart. I do, I, I do like how it's written without actually knowing how he got his costume. Because mm. as you read in it, he'll give you more updates that you should already know if you, if you read this afterwards. Yes. It's like, ah, yes, I ripped my old costume in the fight with the blob that yeah. I didn't know about last issue. That I didn't know about when I wrote Amazing Spider-Man 252. 
Do you get the feeling Jim Shooter wasn't actually on board with telling everyone what his plans were, or he was making it up as he went? I'm not sure entirely. What would you put your money on? Making it up. <laughs> I think you're probably right. See, the company showed him a toy, <laughs> and he had to write a story around Oh, well, it gets better than that. I, don't, I mean, we may have talked about it when we did Secret Wars, but the word Secret Wars yeah. basically came from research that said kids, mainly boys, like the word secret and like the word wars. Okay. That's that's where the title came right, from. Right, okay. I'm, I'm quite surprised that he didn't find a way to write in the crappy shields the toys came with. Maybe he didn't know they were coming with those crappy shields. It's possible. Yeah. But, yeah. All right, fair enough. Anyway, in a nutshell, for people that don't want to go back and listen to those earlier shows, really, why would you not? <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, in Secret Wars number 8, Spider-Man's red and blue costume was trashed and more than a little stinky. When the other heroes found a machine that made costumes and fixed stuff like Cap Shield and Thor's impressive and manly hat, he made himself a new costume. However, Spidey being Spidey unknowingly used a different machine to everybody else. Following the conclusion of the Secret Wars, Spider-Man returns to New York in his natty new duds. The costume generates its own webbing and can flow off Peter's body like unto a thing alive. It can also mimic whatever clothes Peter can visualise. Peter celebrates by returning home, celebrating life. So basically, Amazing Spider-Man 252 is kind of like the equivalent of Trainspotting. Choose life. Choose a big f***ing television. It's shite being Scottish. <laughs> Oh, I hate the English. They're just wankers. But we were colonised by wankers. I do love Trainspotter. It's a great movie. But we're not a Trainspotter. Although, before you go, we right. should do a Palace of Glitter and Delights on Trainspotter. Okay. You and me. And right. your mum will get involved in that because she likes Trainspotting as well. Would we have to read the book beforehand? And I tried. I could not read the book. Could you not? Because it's written in Scottish. Yeah. You have to actually read it. Out loud in well, Scottish. All of them are, aren't they? I, I don't know, I've never read the sequel. I think Trainspotting's the second in a trilogy. Is it? Yeah. I know, because there is a sequel, isn't there? Because I keep trying to do it as a film. Yeah. Is it filth? No, that's separate. It's Skag Boys or something. Is it? And there's something else. Right. Okay, anyway. Like I say, we're not a Trainspotting podcast. No, we But we may be at one point <laughs> before Michael leaves. Uh, other issues of Spider-Man released this month were Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man number 90, which must take place after Amazing Spider-Man 252 because he's wearing his black costume. Okay. <laughs> no dummy me. Uh, Spider-Man only features in a cameo appearance, the issue instead focusing on his then-girlfriend, the Black Cat, searching the city, wondering where he has disappeared to. There is no significant black costume action in this issue, unless one counts the rather slinky affair that Selina wears. Oh, it's not Selina, it's Felicia, isn't it? It is. I don't know how I could get those two confused. Selina, Felicia, Black Cat, Catwoman. I know. You'd have to be really dumb to confuse those two, wouldn't you? Would, would she be called a grey cat? in the animated series. <laughs> Why? Because she's grey in the animated series. Is she? Catwoman, yeah. But this is the black cat. I know, and you said you were confused and it's black cat and grey So she'd cats. be the grey cat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was black in the later episodes. So yeah. then they'd both be black cats. That's true. And that would very, very, it, be it very confusing. Imagine yeah. if both cross your path. That would just be double bad luck. Or is that good luck? Or double theft. Or double theft, yeah. Okay, imagine they both try to case the same joint because yeah. they're both cat burglars. Yeah. You know, the whole cat motif. But then they both they, they both get each other's bad luck. Why has that never happened? A cat one black cat team up. Marvel and DC. Uh, yeah. but it could have happened back in the day. It could have. Ed Brubrecht and Darwin Cook. 
Yeah. They would actually kill on that, wouldn't they? Mm. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, Marvel Team at 141 also came out and has Peter Parker return to the Daily Bugle where he quickly finds himself embroiled with a Ben Urich investigation concerning Daredevil. Apart from a scene with the costume flowing off Peter, which we've already seen in Amazing Spider-Man 252, there are no significant developments. The most interesting thing about this issue is we get to see Spider-Man return from the Secret Wars from a different perspective than ASM 252. Here we see it from the point of view of the TV news reporters covering the event and that's probably about as much as we'll be covering Team Up and Peter Parker. Team Up was in its death throes at this time and whilst not bad it wasn't firing on all cylinders either. The revolving door of creators didn't help with most of the black suited issues having different writers or artists. Peter Parker the spectacular Spider-Man was in a definite slump. Al Milgram had taken over the writing duties from Bill Mantlo and was performing penciling duties as well. Jim Mooney stayed on as Inca. Mantlo had a pretty good run on the book and Al Milgram was a significant step down. His stories weren't all that interesting. In fact, I'd go so far as to say they were dull. His characterisation of the Black Cat and Spider-Man wasn't good either and the title floundered for the year or so that he was on it. So, back then to the main title, which was Firing on All Cylinders. Tom DeFalco had taken over as writer from Roger Stern and if following up one of the best runs of Spider-Man ever was bugging DeFalco, he didn't let it show. Amazing Spider-Man issue 253, cover dated June 1984, has a magnificent cover by Rick Leonardi. In the foreground, a man prunes some roses, whilst in the background, Spider-Man, in his nifty new black and white costume, fights eight armed goons. The colour scheme, the rose in red in the foreground, and the background in white, set off the action really well. What did you think of that cover? It's good. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I like the roses Mickey Mouse gloves. It does look like you're in Mickey Mouse gloves, doesn't it? Yeah. Except he's got them folded down, so they're obviously those gloves that you wear when you do gardening. But yeah, they, they do look like Mickey Mouse gloves. Who's the leader of a gang? R-O-S-E. <laughs> R-O-S-E. Don't work quite as well, does it? it? Does no. It's a great cover, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I really do write... I, 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 I write it! <laughs> I do like a lot of uh, Rick Leonardi's stuff. By Myself Betrayed is by DeFalco, Leonardi and Inca Bill Anderson. Peter Parker has taken a photography gig with Wendy Thornton, the Daily Bugle sports correspondent, due to the lack of any other jobs, Peter having been off on Beyond the World for a bit and thus not being available. In one of those coincidences that happen all the time in comics, Peter comes across an old student, Tony Nestor's, whose brother Ray is a top football player for the NY Mammoths and exactly who Wendy wants to get an interview with. What are the odds? Peter, through Tony, gets Wendy the interview, but it all goes south when Ray is not in the best of moods. In the car park, we learn why. Ray has been on the take, throwing games for the Rose, but as we approach the playoffs, Ray doesn't want to throw any more games. The Rose, however, is having none of it. Ray will take a dive. Or else. Peter, meanwhile, has gone to Aunt May's for dinner, where he tells her he has dropped out of graduate school. May, appalled at Peter for betraying his dreams, refuses to talk to him. Later at the Bugle, things get worse for Peter when Robbie tells him his photos aren't great and his availability, or lack thereof, is counting against him in securing assignments. Still, Wendy is willing to take Peter to the interview with Ray, largely because there are no other photographers left. Cheers, Wend. The Rose sends Ray a wad of cash, but he returns it. The Rose then kidnaps Tony, and Ray decides to take matters into his own hands, ditching Wendy and ramming his Porsche down the Rose's throat. 
Peter as Spider-Man follows as his spider sense tingled when Ray left, and as Ray takes on the rose, Spider-Man runs interference. With Spidey's help, Ray and Tony get away, but Ray has a lot of explaining to do. Ray comes clean giving Wendy her front page story, and she wonders how a man with so much promise could throw it all away. I thought it was third page. What? She gets third page. Does she get third page? I'll take your word for it. Or should I have a look? I thought she got front page story with that. Or is it back page story with it being what's his name? Oh, no. Oh, you made page three. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you rock. Leaving See, the magic with podcast editing, though, is I can change that and no one would ever know <laughs> that I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. There are 30 <laughs> letters in our alphabet. <laughs> You're right, yeah, she only makes page three. Why is this... Was it a big news week? Although I suppose it would have been all the heroes just returned from the Secret Wars. Yeah. So... Footballer on the take, yeah. Probably takes second page to She Hulk now being a member of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. I would have thought. All right, fair enough. Leonardi's page layouts are absolutely fantastic. Uh, I like a lot of Rick Leonardi's work. He does a good job with the sci fly, with the sci fi flowing costume. Um, it's a nice down to earth storyline after Secret Wars, yeah. Even though the costume's got that sci fi stuff. And that panel, uh, page three, panel six, that became the default image for covering the barcode in, in comic shop copies. Right. That shot there from uh, Ritley and Erda. So it was quite nice to see that there was actually a piece of clip out from a comic. Mm. So I like that. Uh, it's a remarkable coincidence that Peter knows Tony Nestor's from his TA days, yeah. but we don't remember him. Although it depends how many classes he taught. Mm. He could have taught quite a few classes. And that his brother is a football player. That is essentially the story Wendy wants. And that he's involved with the Rose in this, his first appearance. I like how this story could have been a story to any 80s TV show. Yes, I've got that note later on. This is an A-team plot, isn't it? Yeah. It's Bur- Burn Notice probably did this. MacGyver probably did this. <laughs> Knight Rider probably did this. But that's... That's kind of the point of it. In addition to having that whole he throws his life away, paralleling Peter. Yeah. Paralleling Peter Parker. Always avoid alliteration. It's good advice. It's a down-to-earth story after the science fiction of The Secret Wars. And let's mm. be honest, Peter Parker doesn't really suit off-world adventures. He's not Rick Deckard. I guess. So The cosmic spidey suit. Well, yeah. He didn't really suit that, though, either, did he? I don't know. It was pretty cool. It was. It was a good issue. I like that. I do like the very similitude as well of the costume. When he's clinging to the wall and he changes his costume, it doesn't flow around his fingers, which I thought was a nice touch. Right. I thought that was really quite clever and interesting. Uh, the Rose will eventually become a major player in the DeFalco run and will be revealed to be the Kingpin's son. Okay. Uh, Richard Fisk. Right, okay. Is that his name? I wonder if he's going to have Richard Fisk in the Daredevil TV show. He'd only be a baby though, wouldn't he? Probably. Because he's not got him yet, so, yeah. Uh, Robbie is much harder on Peter as city editor, sorry, as editor-in-chief, than he was when he was city editor. Yeah. He was actually quite nice to him. Mm. And now he's, your pictures suck! Yeah. And Peter's like, oh, well, I didn't actually ever have any formal training, and it's all done by <laughs> automatics, so what do you expect? And Robbie goes, oh, so you're really Spider-Man. <laughs> and this confirms our belief right, okay. that Robbie knows that he's Spider-Man. Yeah. If Peter Parker's freelance, though, does it really matter if there are no assignments? Because he doesn't work for the Bugle. I know, but it matters from his point of view, because he needs money. Yeah, okay. Why does he not just go over to the Daily Globe again? Why does he always work for the Daily Bugle? 
Yeah. He's got contacts at the Daily Globe. Go and work for them. As a freelancer, he can work for anyone he wants. This is something that did always bug me. He did eventually go and work for the Daily Globe under Barney Bushkin and got paid better, but then the Globe uh-huh. got closed down when it was discovered that their editor was up to something that he shouldn't be. But okay. there must be other newspapers in New York that he could go and freelance for. Yeah. And nowadays there's websites and, and stuff, isn't there? But not back then. No, not back then, but there will have been other newspapers. Yeah. He doesn't have to work exclusively for the Bugle, he's a freelancer. He could just take pictures on his phone, put a nice filter of it. Yeah. Put it up on a blog. There you go. Um, other than that, there's not really a lot to say about this one. It's it's a nice read, mm. and DeFalco does a really good job with it, paralleling the events of Peter's life and Ray Nestor's. He manages to do this without banging us over the head with it as well. Mm-hmm. Which, which I thought was uh, was quite a nice touch, so fair play to him. As Michael's pointed out, this is an A-team plot, more than it's a Spider-Man plot, but the parallels are nicely drawn, and it's it's the artwork's lovely, and it's nice to have an issue every now and again, devoid of, of supervillains. This would have played as a Spider-Man TV episode, wouldn't it? Yeah. If they could afford the budget of having him swinging around town which they couldn't really in the 1970s the art is spectacular Leonardo's a very underrated artist and he rises to the challenge in terms of black costume lore we like the not flowing around the fingers thing and the costume protects Peter from gas which I thought was a nice touch it became a gas mask for him and filtered yeah. it out without him saying something so that was nice but there are no further hints about the nature of the suit. What I want to know is when he puts his camera in his pockets and his his wallets into his suit, why mm. does the suit not bulge? Why is he still... Well, I've got that note later on. It's in an issue further down the line, but you've brought it up now, so we may as well talk it. I can buy the webs. Yeah. Because presumably, after he's finished swinging, he just drags the web back yeah, into himself. That, because he? the webs is the costume, so yeah. does he not lose a bit of it? Well, he probably does lose a bit while he's swinging. Like a bit comes off his toes. So yeah, something like that. So the palm of his... The, to sole of his foot, yeah. that kind of thing. But then he'll just draw that back into himself, won't he? So mm. that makes sense. But is he just swinging around town with camera and change in his tighty-whities? Probably. Because that's we frequently see that's all Peter wears under this. Yeah. A pair of Y fronts with cream piping and a bit stained. <laughs> a couple of holes in them because he's had them for years. Right. Is that where he keeps his camera? So yeah. as he's swinging around, his camera's just banging against his ball sack. <laughs> that would be painful for him. Yeah. I suppose with his lens, it, it yeah. could uh, show off. Because he may have telephoto stuff. Yeah. And, and all the, well, I mean, obviously, he's just impressing the ladies in this case. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. Where, where does he keep the camera? Yeah. And we'll come back to that in next week's episode. Why, does he have to keep a suitcase in there sometimes? <laughs> it's sport bill. It's the Omnisac, isn't it? It may be a transfer stuff to another dimension. Yeah, another dimension. Another dimension. It's uh, he's a video game character. Yeah. You just pick up anything and it just disappears until he needs it. Yeah. Yeah, that seems fair enough to me. Uh, what did you think of that? Oh, there's a little thing on Austin refuses job. Does that mean Terry Austin refused to ink this issue? Oh, Steve Austin refused. <laughs> Steve Austin's to... retired yeah, yeah. from OSI. All right, fair enough. So you're saying that could be a, a slight dig? It could be. Maybe it's just an in-joke of some description, I don't know. Um, what do you think of that one? It was it was quite fun. Uh, yes, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. It was quite fun. Just flicking through, oh yeah, we're reading this in the Saga of the Alien Costume Trade paperback that I recently got for a fiver, rather than dig out all the original issues, so it was nice to read it in this tray. Uh, really the impetus for doing the show. Yeah. I got this trade. 
I thought it would be fun to cover the black Spider-Man costume stuff. Um, yeah, good issue. Generally entertaining. Nice to have just a quiet, low-key issue after the sci-fi stuff. Uh, yeah, so very enjoyable. Marvel Team Up 142 saw Spider-Man cross paths with Captain Marvel, to not terribly interesting effect. Peter Parker issue 91 is much better, demonstrating how stupid Peter's colleagues and friends are. The Black Cat has been searching for Peter, not Spider-Man. Plus, Peter has been away for a week or so, and no one puts it together that he's Spider-Man, when the cat, who is known to be Spider-Man's girlfriend, keeps dropping by Peter's favourite haunts. The story itself actually sees Eunice the Untouchable die when his powers go awry and cause him to be unable to breathe. He just keeps pushing... The other molecules are worse, we can't get a breath, which I thought was quite an interesting idea. Uh, his best friend, the Blob, then goes on a rampage. Uh, ultimately, I think the story undermines one of my favourite issues of all time, Marvel Fanfare issue 7, but it's touching in, in how it's written, I suppose. Uh, I did find it funny that all of Peter's friend now that he's now think that he's a bit kinky, right? and he has a leather fetish okay. because, of, uh, because the black cat's been looking for him. I thought that was quite funny. It's not often you get a sneaky peek into the sex lives of the superheroes. Unless you're reading a Bendis comic. Mark Miller. Yeah. He's probably fascinated with it. Probably. But I do like the idea that all Peter's friends now are going, Hey! Peter! Whips! Leather! Oh! That's and Peter's like, what are you talking about? Because he doesn't know. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man 254, cover dated July 1984, continued the story. Another really excellent cover by Rick Leonardi and Joe Rubenstein. Spider-Man clings to the top of the Hobgoblin's battle van as a mysterious figure on what looks like a glider burrs down on him. Back off, wall crawler! That battle van is mine, yells the figure. A Spider-Man follows the tried-and-true comic book comeback for such an appearance. No, not... You, he says, <coughs> have you ever greeted anyone with, it's you? Sometimes. It, have you? It's, it's always hilarious. Do you, do. And yeah. who do you do it to? There's people. It's very Scott, Scott Pilgrim. Just random people. Well, not random people. So when you walk into somebody in the street, you go, no, not you. Yeah. That totally happens. Totes. More in college, not on the street. Right, okay, fair enough. Ignoring Spider-Man's dialogue, which you can do quite easily, it's a great cover. And as if to emphasise the fact in the trade, fact, they've cut the, the dialogue yeah, off. I, I like the, the uh, covers in these. Yeah, that they've kind of zoomed in a bit and trimmed, Yeah, haven't they? But uh, they've got rid of the logos and got rid of any cover copy, so you're actually just looking at the art, which is really quite nice, isn't it? Mm. They've done a good job with the covers in this trade paperback, haven't they? And they work as chapter breaks as well. Yeah. Which was also quite interesting. With Great Power was by the same creative team as the last issue, but with added inker Joseph Rubenstein. Spider-Man takes some photos of the Hobgoblin's battle van that the city council are finally salvaging from the Hudson River after it crashed there in Amazing Spider-Man 251. Spider-Man is not convinced that the Hobgoblin didn't survive the battle, and he pops a spider tracer on the van as it is loaded upon a flatbed truck for transportation before taking his leave. With that, he finds a payphone and calls Aunt May, who refuses to take his call. A tad put out, he swings to the Daily Bugle. Elsewhere, a shadowy figure stands before a pumpkin man 
and arranges for his operatives to monitor the battle van at all times. They do so even running interference when the battle van picks up a police escort. As the van hits traffic, the lights mysteriously change and a hottie in a Porsche drives up next to the drivers of the flatbed, flirting outrageously and distracting the drivers as a magnetic crane swings over the van, stealing it from under the unsuspecting noses. At the Daily Bugle, Peter has no luck selling his photos, but Nathan calls to tell him that he and his aunt will be at Gino's on 72nd Street if he wants to accidentally pop over to speak to her. Peter agrees, but just as he is leaving, word reaches him that the battle van never reached the impound yard. Spider-Man makes the scene to find out what's what. Thanks to his tracer, he locates the van without too much trouble. But trouble starts with T and rhymes with G. Is that the Hobgoblin? No, it's not. It's Jack-O-Lantern. Jack leads Spidey away and they pursue each other over the New York skyline. However, as they leave, neither man sees the battle van start up and drive away on its own. It's like car. Jack takes the battle to populated areas, knowing he's outclassed, and believing Spider-Man will protect innocents rather than take him on. He's right, but when he goes too far and threatens a kid, Spider-Man punches Jack clean across the street. Jack, fearing capture, blasts a junction box, and as Spider-Man stops to save a mum and her child from electrocution, the jack-o'-lantern makes a fast fade. All this means Peter arrives at Gino's a little bit too late to speak to Aunt May, who has already left. Nathan stayed behind just to tell Peter he blew it. He obviously doesn't care about May or his studies. Peter Parker, look. Don't work, does it? Where do the spider tracers come from? Which goes back to what you were saying uh, about the camera. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, because so are the spider tracers tech, or are they manufactured by the suit? And that's how the you can track it, because it keeps a yeah. connection to it. I mean... You're starting to question the logic of this a little Unless bit. Unless he's got them all lined up his arm, and he just shoots them out. Unless the costume is kind of fabricating pockets. Yeah. But even even with that, the, you'd see a, an unsightly bulge where his uh, yeah his camera was, wouldn't you? Mm. And surely it would just get in the way and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, the solution being has it on his belt, normally is not perfect, but at least it's a solution. Yeah. So, yeah, that that, uh, that struck me as a bit odd. Unless, again, he's, he's just wandering around with all these spider traits in his undercrackers. Jingling around <laughs> as, he, as he walks. Yeah. <laughs> ah, spider tracker cut. <laughs> uh, with the cover and the panel on page three, DeFalco is really setting up that the Hobgoblin has returned, although it's doubtful they'll keep him in the shadows this long if it was really him. The reader is aware of this now, but as a 12-year-old, I wanted it to be the Hobgoblin. Did you? Yeah, because it's hard to imagine now, but the Hobgoblin stuff, as originally presented by Roger Stern and then Tom DeFalco, this was edge-of-the-seat stuff. Mm. Who the Hobgoblin was, it was a big mystery. It It was really fun. And then they botched it. Right, okay. Completely and totally. And then Roger Stone came back and saved it slightly. Right. In Hobgoblin Lives. Okay. Chris Franklin suggested we do the, the, the saga of Hobgoblin. Right. And I've strongly considered it. But we'll see how it goes before as we uh, barrel down to the finish line. So if you go September 1st, we've only got 14 left. Oh, yeah. Only 14 episodes. Let's make everyone mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there are some great dated moments in this comic that, that made me smile. First, Peter has to locate a phone booth 
to call Aunt May. Yeah. Which just really sticks out nowadays, doesn't it? That he has to find a phone booth. Well, he can't put his phone in his, his suit, otherwise we'll see it. Well, yeah, but uh, he doesn't have a mobile phone yet, because <laughs> they didn't exist in 1984. <laughs> is that weird to you now? No. In this era where everyone has a mobile phone? Because it is one of those things... I watch a lot of old TV, because I yeah. like old TV. But you're watching stuff like Stursky Notch or Magnum or whatever now, or The Professionals the other day on ITV4, and you're watching a lot of it now going, this wouldn't happen now because of mobile phones. True. They would have to come up with another way of making this dramatic, because mm. it's very rare that you can cut people off. They just get around that with no connection now. Yeah, or battery dead or whatever, yeah. but you never see people on TV recharge the phones. Yeah. So that would explain why the battery's always dying. Yeah. <laughs> Numpties. <laughs> That is a, a big. That's becoming just as big a cliche, though, isn't it? No yeah. signal. Uh, anyway, the other moment, the distraction to get the police to stop escorting the van, is a roller skating black man with a beatbox on his shoulder. Yeah, which is just a massive eighties cliche on so many levels, and it just amused me because of its clicheness. The third, Nathan's excuse. Uh, that he gives Aunt May for calling Peter is that he's phoning the speaking clock. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do we still have the speaking clock? We do. Do we? Yeah. I can't remember last time I found Dave Gorman spoke about it. Oh, on the. Um, yeah. What was it called? Modern uh, Life is Goodish? Yeah. Right. Like the people who tried selling you a PPI or whatever. Yeah. Just they. I think they used it a lot. Can't remember. can't remember the details. Yeah. All right, okay, fair enough. I can't remember the last time I used a speaking clock on the phone, to be honest with you. Uh, the woman that distracts the drivers would have to be belly dancing topless for you to not notice they stole that massive van from the back of your truck. Yeah. They're a little bit dumb, aren't they? Just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's, she's only, all she does is drive past and giggle at them. <laughs> It's not like she's doing some kind of real distraction technique. Maybe he's just pretty thirsty. <laughs> Milk. <laughs> Lunch. <laughs> uh, Tom DeFalco makes an appearance on page now. Oh, okay. That would be Tom DeFalco, though. And he even calls him Mr. Falcone. Ah, so right. So it's, it's kind of obvious that that's Tom DeFalco. Some excellent art on page 12. Spider-Man shines the spider signal on the hoodlums. The colouring's really good giving off a pink glow mm. rather than usual red which it looks really good on the black and white costume yeah. so the colouring's really nice I like the bit. page before it when Peter and What's-His-Face are just Wendy wearing, yeah they're wearing the same coloured clothes just alter- alternated yeah so well Peter's got a jacket on but uh, yeah I see your part he's got a blue jacket on she's got blue pants on he's got red pants on she's got a red top on yeah they've got that kind of tight pinched waist yeah that was popular in the 80s he wears some pretty dodgy clothes in these comics compared to today let's just ignore the fact that he's got no phone he's, he's wearing some <laughs> dodgy stuff in a lot of it it's the 80s I mean Peter Parker's fashion sense was always you know he wears a new jacket in the 70s yeah you know what I mean, with the tassels on oh, he yeah. totally has one of them coats which is so amusing to me now when we read a Peter Parker fashion template. Mm-hmm. Although he's more fashionable now than he was in the 60s. Yeah. With his button-down tops and his vests. What did he have on? Tank tops. He's, he's jumpers as well. Yeah, so uh, he's a little bit more fashionable. But yeah, it, that does date the comic a little bit. Yeah. The fashion choices that he makes. Uh, some excellent writing, once again, by DeFalco. Spider-Man isn't dumb. 
and he knows full well that Jack O'Lantern is luring him away from the van. But given that he's got a spider tracer on it, he's, he's not really too bothered and he decides to take, um, take Jack on. As usual, DeFalco lays the problems on for Peter a little bit thick. May wondering about Peter's sense of responsibility to his studies as he's tackling costume criminals. But it's a nice touch that May knew Nathan was calling Peter. Yeah. And one of the things I did like about DeFalco's early run on the stuff, he doesn't play any of the characters as dumb. Mm. They sometimes do stupid things. Yeah. And sometimes events happen in the story that make them look a little bit daft. But they're never portrayed as actually being dumb. Mm. Which I quite like. Uh, G.I. Joe dolls and Hey Kids. Uh, there's yeah. a band of those saying Hey Kids. Just behind those says Comics, the live show. <laughs> and we will be doing autographs in the foyer at 2 o'clock. That's what that band says. Will we? Yeah, are, yeah, we yeah. are we famous in the 80s? In, in the 80s, yeah. I was totally famous and you didn't exist. Yeah. So, page 80. Go back and look, lovely listener. Time travel. Time travel is what it's all about. Jack O'Lantern's a great villain. I like the Jack O'Lantern a great deal. He's he's not A-list. No. By any stretch of the imagination. But and I do like that he's, he's seriously outclassed. Yeah. By Spider-Man. And he knows it. So, but he will ultimately go on to be the Hobgoblin. Jack right. O'Lantern will steal Hobgoblin's tech. I told you they messed it up. Alright. The Hobgoblin story arc. I've, uh, got a, I've got a Jack O'Lantern tie. You have got a Jack O'Lantern tie. But for you, by Kath, who I used to work with when we just had... Adam? Yeah. And you came to work with me tonight, school, because your mum was obviously not very well, having just had a baby. Mm. So you had to come to night school with me, and she took you out and took you to Asbury and bought you a jack-o'-lantern tie. Because she said, what tie do you want? And she's Spider-Man. <laughs> so you bought your jack-o'-lantern. That's pretty... It's a good tie, that, as well. It is. It? With a little bug thing. Yeah. And you push it back and it shoots out pumpkins. Yeah. Have you still got it? I think so, yeah. Awesome. And it, it, it stands on the little... He does, he stands on the little pumpkin glider, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah it's a good tie, that. So she kept me out of the way while I was teaching. <laughs> no, I was doing my job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another great issue, albeit light on black costume information, character-wise. This is top-notch stuff, though. DeFalco is a much underrated writer, and whilst people sometimes see his old-fashioned style and approach to dialogue and slag him off for it, they tend to miss the character dynamics that are in play. Now, granted, they may not be subtle... But DeFalco manages to have Peter completely blow his chance with May and be on the outs with Nathan in a story that, had Spider-Man not gotten involved, would have had exactly the same outcome, Mm. wouldn't it? The battle van still got stolen, and it still returned to wherever the hell it was going to, and he's still none the wiser as if the Hobgoblin's alive. So he could have just gone to Geno's and made his peace with May, and this issue would have had no difference in ending. Yeah. Jack O'Lantern may not have caused all this trouble. Yeah. But that was Spider-Man's fault. True. So it does beg the question, does he do this out of responsibility, or is he just an action junkie? Don't know. I think he's an action junkie at some point. Could be. I think Peter Parker's become addicted to the action. I thought a bit where Nathan was like, ah, you had absolutely no excuse whatsoever at all, nothing was more important than this was a bit heavy. Yeah, because he doesn't actually say, well, what's your excuse? Yeah, he just shouts. for all he knows, he may have had an excuse. Yeah. So, you know. Alright. Letters page, which isn't in the uh, graphic novel collection, obviously had a letter from Stanley. Right, okay. About the kid who collected Spider-Man. 
Yeah. So that was nice to see. Marvel Team Up 143 has Spider-Man and Star Fox team up to help Captain Marvel in a story about dimension hopping. That really doesn't suit Spider-Man at all. Peter Parker issue 92 asks, what is the answer? But we aren't terribly interested in the question, as Al Milgram's lacklustre run continues. We learn that Peter can remove the costume from around his mouth, and he and the black cat get it on. And the answer learns that Spider-Man's costume repairs itself, something he thinks will be of use to the kingpin. Can't remember if anything came of this or not. There's also a great scene where Robbie congratulates Peter on his photos being much better than normal, which annoys Peter because the black cat took them. Oops. Other than that, though, Spider-Man is really stupid and clumsy in this issue, getting he and the black cat caught in his own webbing, and the answer just isn't a very interesting villain. Amazing Spider-Man issue 255 sees Ron Friends come aboard as regular penciler and he and Joe Rubenstein provide the cover of the Red Ghost and his super apes screaming in panic as Spider-Man looms menacingly in the background. I don't think it's possible to not loom menacingly. Mm. No one ever looms pleasantly, do they? True. Just the word loom implies menace. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, okay. Good cover, using the black background against the black and white costume to great effect. Even a ghost can fear the night, runs the copy, which is also the title of the issue. There's nothing else for the the graphic novel to chop off, is there? No, that's pretty much it. Alright, fair dues. Do you like the cover? I do, yeah. I like all of these covers. I think Ron Friends does a pretty cool job. It's very well composed as well. The monkeys look really good. Mm. Oh, sorry, the super apes. (laughs) look really good as well there's something cool about the super apes yeah not, he's not the greatest villain in the world I don't know I did get a bit excited when I realised it was the red ghost did you I did why do you like the red ghost I, don't, I really like the red ghost he's pretty cool <laughs> alright as, as a early fantastic four communist yeah and he's, he is mad yeah he is quite insane well is he just called the ghost in this or is he called the red ghost I think no, he's, he's still called the red ghost isn't he because he's still Russian yeah and you've still got the cold war at this point yeah. So it still kind of works. It's, right. it's not as heavy as early FF. No, stuff. no, it's not as uh, it's not as on your nose as uh, <laughs> early 60s stuff. But yeah, it's still there. A black-clad figure swings high atop a prestigious-looking apartment building in New York. The figure clings to the wall and steals inside using a glass cutter. Once there, the figure casually admires his surrounding and starts to rip the joint off. Suddenly, a priceless vase morphs into an ape. And there's a sentence I never thought I'd write. And the figure stands revealed as notorious cat burglar, the Black Fox. And the ape is but one of a set of four. Collect them all. All under the command of the Red Ghost. The ghost lured the fox here. And it turns out that the ghost needs the fox to boost his funds. See, the ghost is making a machine called the Circumciser. Which will boost his powers tenfold. But more money is required. Honestly, truth in advertising, the machine's called the Cosmic Sizer. But Circumciser is much funnier. And that's actually how I read it. Is it? You know, I remember I was sat reading it and I burst out laughing. <laughs> and they were all right, maybe you weren't here, but your mum said, what are you laughing at? <laughs> the circumcised. <laughs> and she just gave me the look. <laughs> Which uh, I'm, I'm kind of used to by this point. Turns a thousand Jewish boys into men. It, it does indeed. <laughs> In an hour. <laughs> <laughs> the circumcised are only 99 <laughs> Uh, Anyway, the synopsis continues. The ghost has become a serious acrophobe and needs the fox to do his bidding. Or 
or die. And I like that I do that. (laughs) Elsewhere, Peter Parker tosses and turns in his sleep as, unbeknownst to him, the black costume slithers over to him. He awakens the next day to the loud banging of his landlady, Mrs. Muggins. Banging on his door, anyway. Convinced he's only been asleep for a few hours, Peter stumbles groggily to the door, only to find Muggins wants her rent, and he's been asleep all day. Having wasted the day, he fobs Mrs. Muggins off with some excuse and goes in search of the Hobgoblin's battle van. The fox, meanwhile, has hit the streets with the super apes and arrives at his destination, a bank full of lovely money. The apes are a tad overzealous, ripping off doors and tearing apart the bank vault, which brings with it the unwanted attention of both the Rosas and Spider-Man. Not pleased with this, after all, the fox may be a thief, but he's no killer, he uses a flash grenade and makes a run for it. The apes corner him, though, but before they can go ape on his head, Spider-Man drops by and chases them off. The fox tells Spidey everything, and the wall crawler leaves in pursuit of the apes, inadvertently leaving behind jewels from the heist. The fox picks them up and scoops off. Spider-Man has followed the apes to the lair, where he gets the strongest ape to destroy the circumciser, and the red ghost vows vengeance against Spider-Man, even as he is forced to flee by the arrival of the police. It's a night of disappointment for Spider-Man, as his dalliance with the ghost means that the shadowy figure that stole the battle van has found the Spider-Tracer and crushes it under his boot. Squelch. Uh, it's never mentioned anywhere as far as I know, but I actually thought it would be really cool to have the Black Fox be partner of the original Black Cat, who was Felicia Hardy's dad. Uh, oh yeah. That would have been a nice touch, wouldn't it? A lot of these panels here are, I don't want to say rip-offs of Steve Ditko, but certainly there's a number of panels here that are homages to Ditko. Friends is, I think he's quite an underrated artist. His storytelling's impeccable. And some of the panel work is pretty exemplary. His close-up of the Red Ghost on page 7 being one of the things that is fantastic. It looks like Lex Luthor, mm. doesn't he? But uh, he's, he's absolutely great. Absolutely fantastic. The entire opening sequence, though, Friends plays fur with the reader. And as such, even though the scripting leads us to believe that it's Spider-Man robbing this apartment, it's quite obvious from the art that it isn't. Yeah, because there's no cheating that there's a white spider on the costume, is there? Mm. So, you know... Unlike that issue of Batman we did. Yeah, that's Superman. Yeah. Where Superman has his hair messed up so it looks like he's got bat hogs. Yeah. And you're like, really? <laughs> Clark normally has his hair perfectly combed, but this week he's got bat hogs. Alright, fair enough. Good, in- good opening. Yeah. Though, I did like the opening. Spider-Man having to wash the costume makes no sense. Granted, Peter mentions that this is purely an affectation, so why is he bothering? Doesn't doesn't the costume repel dirt? Because he actually says that. The alien material repels dirt molecules. Why is he bothering doing this, then? Pass the time. He's doing it to kill some time. He's lucky the costume doesn't drown. (laughs) That would have been (laughs) unfortunate. That would have been really unfortunate for him, wouldn't it? If you washed it and it had drowned or just melted on him. It would have saved him a lot of time and effort later on. (laughs) Yeah, and the the comic would have finished it. Wow, suddenly I feel so happy and bright. (laughs) I'm going to get my life back on track. Suddenly I'm not tired anymore. (laughs) Yeah, alright. This is the first issue, though, that starts setting up the actual story of the costume and its real intentions. Page five is the first inkling we get that the suit is up to no good and Peter's lethargy will become more pronounced as as the storyline 
progresses and DeFalco builds up to the conclusion. Uh, nice touch. The Red Ghost just set all of this up so that the fox would rob him. Mm. It was a trap. It was a trap! So that was nice. And one of the main criticisms of superhero comics is that superheroes are just reactive rather than proactive. And this is very much the case Yeah, in this particular story. Spider-Man just blunders into this adventure by pure chance, mm. doesn't he? There's no other way he would have fallen into this. I mean, he was being proactive originally in trying to locate the battle van. And this is one of the genius things of the Marvel Shared Word concept, in that the Red Ghost is not really a Spider-Man villain, although they have met before, uh, most recently in Amazing Spider-Man 223, from December 1981. But you don't think Red Ghost and think of Spider-Man, do you? No. You think of uh, of um, the Fantastic Four, more mm. than anything. I, I do like how much the, the grey fox, the black fox... <laughs> Very good. Doesn't doesn't he, he doesn't mix well with the apes. They're very loud and heavy, and he's really quiet, and he's just so out of place. Yeah, it is, it's a nice touch as well that he's like, I, I don't even want to be here. Yeah, and that the yeah he's trying to be all stealthy, and they just rip the door off. Mm. You know, ape will not kill ape, but they don't really have a problem killing the black fox. Apparently, unusually for a Spider-Man story, all the villains get away in this issue. Yeah. Which is a far cry from the 50s and 60s comics code guideline that villains had to receive their comeuppance mm. at the end of the story. Everyone gets away, the Red Ghost gets away, the Apes get away, the Black Fox gets away. Spider-Man doesn't stop anything here. He's quite useless, really, isn't he? He is, yeah. In this sequence of Ever story. since he got this black suit, nothing but bad. Nothing but bad luck befalls young Peter Parker ever since he got the black suit. That's very true. Uh, Friends is very much the spiritual successor to Ditko in his layouts and compositions in the same way that Romita Jr. was the spiritual successor to his father. He even, in what I thought was an absolutely fantastic touch, brings back the spider's web on the splash page starting with the next issue. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love that they bring that back, which is uh, is really good. I liked that. I thought this was a really good issue. I thought this was really fun. It was action-packed, and DeFalco manages to start seeding the black costume. Friends makes a great debut as regular artist. There's a lot of repeated information regarding recent subplots, but it's not got tiresome yet. It will, right, okay. as we go along. But it, it was a good one. I liked it. What did you think? I, I quite liked it, yeah. I love the Red Ghost, so... Yeah, they're all, they're all solid superhero stories, aren't they? Yeah. They're not... I don't, I don't think any of this is, like, five-star material. Yeah. But, but there's nothing bad. They're all good 7.5 to 8 out of 10 it stories. It seems a lot like just the backdrop to a building-up story. Which is good, because that's what he's doing. Mm. And he does build up to a really satisfying conclusion yeah. as you get to the final two issues in the trade, which we'll cover next week. Stay tuned. Uh, also out with the cover date of August 1984, Marvel Team at 144 has Spider-Man join forces with Moon Knight to fight the White Dragon. It pays lip service to the Daily Bugle subplot by having Peter mention his problems with getting work from Robbie, but there's nothing contributed to the Black Costume Saga. Not a bad issue, though. Peter Parker issue 93 continues the Black Cat Kingpin storyline, with more from The Answer. None of that is of interest to us. What is of interest is that this has a scene furthering the black costume plot. Mrs. Muggins drops by for the money that she demanded in the last issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and Peter hands her a wad of bills he earned from passing Felicia's pictures off as his own. Ethics? What ethics? 
While stood in the doorway, she catches a glimpse of a black-garbed person in Peter's bedroom. She immediately jumps to the conclusion that it's the black cat, who she's seen around here before, and accuses Peter of being up to all manner of kinky shenanigans. Peter shoes Mrs. M away before entering the bedroom, prepared to give Felicia a piece of his mind, and probably something else as well, but there's nothing there except the black costume. Peter wonders if it is moving of its own accord without his mental commands and resolves to take it to the Baxter building at some future point to allow Reed Richards to analyse it. And thus, a major plot point cometh. Interesting, that's the only interesting black costume tidbit in the other books. Yeah. Everything else all takes place in Amazing Spider. Why was it in the main book then? I don't know. Maybe they just felt that, well, maybe we have to do something yeah. in Peter Parker to further the black costume storyline. But, no, for the most part, there is absolutely nothing of import in any of those stories. Amazing Spider-Man 256, cover dated September 1984, has another great cover that simply exudes menace. Spider-Man, his spider-sense blurring, illuminated in yellow from the streetlights, cowers behind a chimney, clutching at his wounded left arm. A menacing figure cloaked in shadow stalks the wall crawler in the background. Injured, helpless, and stalked by Puma is the evocative cover copy. Friends and Rubenstein put this one in the back of the net. The only problem... Although it's not really a problem. The graphic novel collection removes the cover copy, making you think that it could be Craven. Right. Who's yeah. hunting him, doesn't it? Whereas that's obviously removed in the real cover yeah. with the caption that says Puma. So you're instantly like, all oh, right, it's not Craven then. So, another good cover though. Yeah. Spider Man looks quite good in inverted colours though. He does. He does really look really excellent, doesn't he? Mm. So, yeah, very, very good cover. We like it lots. Introducing Puma was by DeFalco Friends and Rubenstein. A Spider-Man breaks up a fencing ring, the Black Cat snaps some more photos for him to sell to the Daily Bugle. Spidey gets in a bit of a jam, nothing he can't handle, but fed up with playing Jimmy Olsen, the cat enters the fray. She and Spider-Man make short work of the thugs, thanks to her new bad luck power, and they take their leave. Spider-Man decides to head home instead of partying with the cat to develop the picture she just took and get an early night. He's been feeling quite tired of late and hopes a decent night's kip will rejuvenate him. Whilst he sleeps, however, his new alien costume springs to life, sidles across the floor and pounces on an unsuspecting Peter Parker. News of Spider-Man's disruption of the fencing operation reaches the ears of the Rose, and he decides to pluck the wall crawler once and for all. He calls in Thomas Fireheart, the head of Fireheart Industries. Fireheart is a tad busy at the moment. In addition to being a millionaire businessman, he's a human-puma hybrid, and he's hunting a few animals to hone his skills. But as soon as that's done, he returns the call. The next day at the Bugle, Peter drops off his pictures and Betty and Mary Jane both comment on how shattered he looks. Elsewhere, Fireheart arrives in New York and takes the Rose's assignment. After all, it's been a while since he had a truly worthy opponent. He sits and meditates and whilst he does so, a transformation takes place in which our Simon McCorkindale wannabe shapeshift once more into the Puma. Then, focusing on Spider-Man's scent, he locates his prey. Before attacking, Puma decides to test his foe. Snapping a chimney pipe, Puma hurls it at Spider-Man, who, wrapped up in himself as usual, ignores his spider sense until the pipe is nearly touching his temple. At the very last picosecond, he notices the projectile, spins out of the way, and 
falls. Clutching for a wall, his fingers adhere to the brickwork, but with such force that it wrenches his arm from his socket. Spidey, stunned and dizzy, manages to climb up and, with no choice, pushes his arm back into his shoulder socket, but blacks out due to the pain. The puma advances. Taking Spider-Man out like this is hardly sporting, but a contract is a contract. Uh, reading this in trade form, we do get some of the repetition of the monthly format, and it, it kind of starts becoming a little bit too apparent, hmm. reading it in trade like this. On a monthly basis, the constant referencing of stuff we already know is fine, but when you're reading it in a collected edition like this... We get the, the feeling that every other page is reminding us that A, Peter has fallen out with May, B, Peter and the Black Cat have a strained relationship, C, Robbie doesn't like Peter's pictures, and D, Peter is tired a lot. Yeah. It's not a criticism. It's it's just more of a commentary on the evolution of comics, isn't it? Mm. Some of this, they could have done some editing in this as well and tidied up some of those loose ends, couldn't they? Yeah. Because, you know... I think it would have actually made for a more fluid read if they'd done with this what they did with that Trial of Galactus Fantastic Four trade, mm. where they chopped out pages and, and made it flow better. Uh, again, Friends' depictions of Spider-Man are very Ditko. Love the opening, where you get the multiple... But that panel at the bottom of page two, I'm convinced that's a direct lift yeah. of a Ditko issue, which he kind of gets away with because he's wearing the black costume rather than the red and the blue. So if you just copied and pasted it, but the colour's in the red. No, he's, he's not copied and pasted it, but it does feel like a swipe. Yeah. I'm surprised that Rich Johnson's never picked some of this stuff up for swipe <laughs> file, but he only really seems interested when he can be a bit salacious, doesn't he? Mm. So when he can point out that Greg Land's using porn... Yeah, He'll yeah. do a swipe file, but this he's probably not bothered too much. Which is a bit of a shame, I suppose. Uh, some good foreshadowing when Peter finds the old red and blue costume in the back of his closet and ponders his current predicament. It also should be noted Peter does not know about the black cat's bad luck power at this point. He certainly doesn't know she got those powers from the kingpin. Yeah. Otherwise he'd, uh, he'd probably be a bit miffed. And indeed would be, as we learn in Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man 100, where he and the Black Cat split up. Uh, for the first time in an issue of Spider-Man, it's heavily implied that Spider-Man is swinging over the city whilst Peter is in bed. Mm. So that's that's a little interesting nugget of subplottery. And something that made me laugh unintentionally, which I, I get that quite a lot right. in some of these comics. Puma's PA is named Jenna Taylor. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Did you not get that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm such a child. But I'm sorry it made me laugh. Especially seeing it in print. Yeah. It's like, how can you see that in print and not go, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's change her surname to Smith. Because <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered yeah. in the grand scheme of things, would it? But, alright, fair enough. Again, the days before phones, Tom DeFalco would have had to come up with four more pages of story, as the Puma would just simply have called Puma's Mobile. The Puma, sorry, the Rose would have just called Puma's Mobile, wouldn't he? Mm. Rendering these four pages moot. Yeah. Because you wouldn't need a but you know. The, the Puma's quite, I, I don't know, I didn't think he was all that great. He's not, and is he? He, he? he turns from Puma to human, and the badass guy he's got just disappears. Hmm. He's not that that great of a character, the Puma. I think it's it's one of the things 
one of the reasons I don't think he ever really took off as a character. He's, he's not interesting. He is Craven, but not. Yeah, he's Craven with a dash of Bruce Wayne. Yeah. I mean, his background is hinted at, so there's some potential there. But there's not really a lot to get excited about in, in this, his first appearance, is there? No. He's basically just another guy out hunting Spider-Man. I, I guess it does say introduce him, Puma, so it does a decent job. Well, it introduces him. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> alright. <laughs> does what it says on the tin. So doesn't really do a good job. Yeah, and he's very, he's very manimal. Yeah. Which was, this is 1984, when was manimal? Does manimal... Do you know what, actually, I think this may predate Manimal. Right. Manimal was either 84 or 85. Yeah. And this is 84. So I may be accusing him of being a Simon McCorkindale rip-off, but this may actually predate Manimal. In which case, Glenn Larson ripped something off to turn <laughs> it into a TV show. That never happened. Two old girlfriends collide, Betty Brant and Murray Jane. I have no idea what the hell Murray Jane's watch were in. A very, very, very short leather miniskirt. You can see all the way to Florida, though, can't you? Um, fishnet stockings and those little tiny witchy-poo boots that were fashionable in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Is this dating Murray Jane more than Peter's clothes? Because Peter's just wearing jeans and a pair of Adidas. Yeah. And let's be honest, jeans and a pair of Adidas are timeless. Yeah. But well, they can be worn any time by anybody. And uh, he's just wearing a black hoodie. He's got a life preserver on. Yeah. Like Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. He's going to go swimming later. Yeah, but other than that, but Mary Jane's outfit really does scream. Yeah. Maybe maybe she's doing those bitter ex-girlfriend porn videos you see advertised on dodgy websites. Oh, she's just been in the toilet writing for a good time, Carl. Yeah, that's it. I mean, she looks fine, I suppose. I don't know. The skirt's a bit short, isn't it? I, I guess. Are you not having a problem with that skirt? <laughs> All right, fair enough. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm getting on a bit. Maybe I'm looking at her going, ooh, it'll be a bit cool. What's <laughs> some pants on? At least she's got a coat on. That's true. At least she has a coat on. That's very true. Uh, I do hope Spider-Man bottled his scent and sells it. <laughs> because uh, I think the world's crying out for Oody Spider-Man. Pack of fragrance. Yeah, I mean, if David Beckham can do a fragrance, yeah. Spider-Man can do one. <laughs> Sweaty fight Spider-Man. <laughs> Paco de Webb. <laughs> That's the, and an arty black and white photo of him. <laughs> yeah. With his, his bottle of whatever, kissing the black cat. Hoochie and Picano. Yeah. Kissing the black cat with nothing on but his mask. Yeah. Because that would totally be something that they would never do in the comments. And there'll be a slow motion shot of him jumping off the building. <laughs> and then he'll he'll be jumping into an ocean, but then he's off a building again. Yeah, it's some pretentious black and white advert. Yeah. Yeah. Fear. <laughs> cold. Wind. Paco the Spider. <laughs> that totally works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, all right, fair enough. Uh, uh, go on. I'm you, you, fun could, you could go on with the, the, the mock Spider-Man commercials. Uh, Spider-Man seems very stupid ignoring his spider sense, because it's clearly blurring away. Yeah. And he's like, uh, you know. Maybe he really is very tired. And he's having one of his Peter Parker-esque moments of self-reflection. Yeah. So Self-loathing makes you Self-loathing makes you ignore your spider sense, yeah. Uh, the arm socket thing was relatively new when this was done, but by the time of the Lethal Weapon films, Mel Gibson's just snapping it in and out at wind <laughs> yeah. with Burley a problem. Doesn't he do it to just get out of a straitjacket or something? I, I don't know. Because Thingyor does it in um, John Wick. Yeah. Mockingbird from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. snaps her thumb out of its socket to get out of something she, and then just snaps it back in. Yeah. And you're like, oh, it's that easy, is it? <laughs> and by the time you get to the TV show Modern Family, Gloria can apparently do it without 
bothering. Oh, look, I can snap my socket out. Oh, look, I can snap my arm back in. So apparently Spider-Man's a big wuss. Yeah. For passing out here. I like grosses me out, the, the dislocation thing. There's a, it yeah. is quite an effective series of panels. Very well drawn. And I love his... I always love the angles where you're above Spider-Man, looking at Spider-Man who's underneath you, looking down on the New York skyline. Yeah. It's always very vertigo, isn't it? Mm. Which is nice. It's, it's quite cool that they actually did that, though. Yeah. The amount of times they forget physics yeah. in comics so it's, it's pretty cool he made it important yeah so it normally would have just stopped himself and everything would have been fine yeah whereas here it does actually yank his but it shows how powerful his sticky hands are yeah that they can do that and yeah scrape his fingers off like concrete yeah I liked it I, I, like I said I, did, I think it's become overused since then yeah but that's not Tom DeFalco's fault he did it first Okay. He, he was doing it before the Lethal Weapon movies, so, you know, fair enough. Um, like Michael said, the, uh, I, I agree entirely, it's a good issue, but it's not a great issue. Puma's not that interesting, the, you know, the most dangerous game aspect of him is intriguing. But like you say, he's just a knockoff of Craven, mm. really. Um, his background's hinted at, but there's not really a lot of interest here. In other respects, this is quite slight barely moving the story of the the black costume along and all the subplots just kind of spin in place without any advancement really I mean it does all start ramping up with the next issue what did you think of that one that last issue yeah just part one of Puma it was fine enough I guess Puma wasn't that interesting to justify two parts though true but there are, there are a couple of, of developments in part two that I presume you've not read yet. I've not. Okay. That uh, that do kind of justify it being a two-parter. But okay. yeah, Puma... He, I don't think Puma ever really became anything. He becomes a major, minor supporting character when he buys the Daily Bugle. Does he? Yeah. Oh, but okay. other than that, no, he, he, nobody ever really did anything. Uh, we will leave it there, though, with part two, with a big cliffhanger ending. How's Spider-Man going to get out of this one? <laughs> hey. Wow, we may not have a show next week if he doesn't survive. Well, <laughs> do, you, just, do you really think he, he won't? Yeah, we'll just have to go on to doing the post-crisis stuff that we're doing next, and just next next week's no, no episode. Yeah. Yeah, we'll call it a day, though. Next time on an all-new episode, part two of our look at the original black costume storyline, and then I've just spoiled what we're doing after that. We're going to look at the immediate first issue, post-crisis issues from, from DC. That looks like fun, doesn't mm-hmm. it? That's what I think. So have you finally decided what we're doing for that then? Yes, I have. Okay. I'll tell everybody next week. Wow. Oh, I'm such a tease. You are. Yeah. Tease is better than nothing. That, I'm so fragging Luke. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. 
The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Issue 143 has Spider-Man and Star Fox. Star Fox. <laughs> <laughs>